Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest is movie, television, and Broadway actor, writer, and comedian, Paul Dooley. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And uh, my middle name is George. Hi, George. And today we have a man of many names and many talents. One of my many names is my middle name is George. That's right. Your middle name is, is George. Your birth name is Paul George Brown? Brown was my name. Yeah. How did you come up with the name Dooley? Well, and I was a boy cartoonist, and in high school and college, I knew cartoons for the humor magazine. Uh-huh. But just on my own, when I was fooling around and doodling, I started oh. signing pen names. I used to sign everything P.B., Paul Brown. P.B. The reason I didn't keep Paul Brown was when I was five years old, a woman on the streetcar said, what's your name? I said, Paul Brown. She said, oh, are you the coach at Ohio State? <laughs> <laughs> and I said to my mother, I said, no, I'm just Paul Brown, Paul Brown. five years old. And my mother said, that's the famous man who works for the football team. I said, I didn't want him having my name. I didn't want to have his name. Even at five, I didn't know what I would do, but I wanted my identity. That's cool. It became Brown Stadium. Yep. Cleveland Browns are still oh, named after that's him. That's right, that's right. He had six winning seasons in high school, so he was a legend in high schools. They yeah. wanted to bring him into professional ball. And he said, this one thing, I, I want the team to be named after me. I want them to be the Cleveland Browns. They wow. said, okay. And now there's a Brown Stadium and everything. <laughs> wow. But then I found a guy on Broadway in South Pacific, had the same name. He was a... Paul Dooley? Yeah, no, Pearl Brown. Oh, Paul Brown, right. Paul Brown. Okay. And, and I said, I can't ah, use that's that. that's it. So I'd been doodling. I like the Irish name. It's a comedic thing. I... So I used to draw a doodle, a face or something, that I read O'Malley, Clancy. They all seem like comedy names yeah. to me. And I, I like Muldoon. I like the double O's. And finally, I, I used Dooley then... In college, they asked the speech department, the, um, the local high school called over to the college, said, could you send some actors over to be in our annual fair? So I dressed as a clown, and I called him Dooley, and this stuck with me all these years. You stepped into show business with big shoes. Right? <laughs> I did. <laughs> right? right? And you were performing for kids when you started. Yeah, I couldn't get into equity sag and after. I couldn't get in the union. It was a catch-22. You can't get the card without the job. Exactly. So I did... Uh, Alabama and the Forty Thieves and Simple Simon and whatever it was. I was Lenny the Lobster. <laughs> and, and I also uh, did plays about venereal disease. <laughs> really? In New York. I think Lenny had the clap. <laughs> <laughs> the Lobster had crabs. You know, I was telling you about working at the Village Vanguard and I saw Lenny Bruce very early in his career. Yes. Uh -huh. He said they asked me to do a benefit on television. Uh, I said, okay, but I don't know if I'm qualified. It was the Clapathon. <laughs> <laughs> Clapathon. <laughs> the guys I observed at the Village Vanguard, Eleni Bruce. Yep. This his career was taking off. Also, I saw the first day that Mike and Lane ever came to New York. They came Nichols to and May. And did one night. Yeah. And their manager, the famous Jack Rollins, the greatest manager in the business, took them immediately. Within a month, they were known to all the hoi polloi. The whole society was falling in love with them. They went on NBC radio. Yeah. Right, so you were clowning around. And how would you would you say you got into this extraordinary career that you've had of doing so many different characters? A part of it because you were working with like Second City people and developed the art of improv, I imagine. Yeah, Andrew Duncan and I got so good at 
intuiting each other, mm-hmm. knowing where the guy's going. Mm-hmm. We became, it was almost like a mystical thing. Andrew Duncan yeah. was one of the original. original uh, Second City. <laughs> Thank you. There's an echo in here. Echo in here. <laughs> uh, Second City performers. But then later you uh, did commercials with him. They teamed us up together for some reason. Was this Chicago or this New York? Well, when they came to Broadway to do a show, mm-hmm. they needed an understudy to do it in the village, and I became their understudy. That's how I got into improv, yeah. without knowing how to do it. You became the understudy, right? I said, you don't need to get four understudies. If one guy's going for two weeks and comes back, yeah. I'll do the other guy. Yeah. So I'm doing Andrew's material and Larkin's. But you have a, a gift that you remember comedy, remember Everything. Uh, everything. You remember acts. I'm cursed. Some wrinkle in my brain, you know how it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not exactly an idiot savant who, like Rain Oh, Man, you're just an idiot. It is, it's just an idiot without the savant. <laughs> you know, if I've seen 800 comedians and they each had 50 jokes, I'd remember two or three of the ones I like best. And so if you say Fat Jack Leonard or anybody it is. Or Burl. I remember, you know. I never, I never liked Burl, though, because he stole from everybody. Yeah, he did. and uh, He invented television. I mean, he made... Uncle Melty. He did everything that had been done before. He stole from vaudeville. Yep, stole from vaudeville. He made fun of stealing. Yes, the other he did. comics the named thief him of ba- the thief of bad gags. He said, I went to see Jessel the other night. He was so funny, I dropped my pencil. So he knew that people <laughs> thought he was yeah, a... right. And he did every standard vaudeville scene and burlesque scene. And, and not only that, but he stuck his nose in everybody else's act. If there was an acrobat act, he wouldn't let them finish. He wouldn't let them do just what they're at. He'd come out and get in it and, you know, try to jump up in the air or do something with them. A dancers are dancing. He'd come out and dance That's with them. Dancer. Could not stop showing off. No, it's true. And even as a young age, I said, I don't like that kind of comedy. Mm-hmm. I loved Buster Keaton as a minimalist as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, the greatest. In fact, Buster's a leitmotif in my life because right. I saw him first in film when he was I was 15. And 30 years later, I met him and did a commercial with him. Oh. What was he like personally? Very quiet. Reserved, <laughs> I imagine. Silent type. It was a silent thing. It was for Econoline vans. And a bunch of Keystone cops, I was one of them, chased him through a bunch of vans in one door and out the oh, other. Oh, that's funny. And it was all silent, of course. And uh, there were four Keystone cops. One of them was Barney Martin, who became Seinfeld's dad. Ah. Wonderful actor. It's a great story about him. He was a cop in New York. And... His beat was to be outside the Ed Sullivan Theater and to keep the crowd people in control so that when the stars came in and out, they they didn't bug them. He was surrounded so much, he knew the people inside. And one day they said to him, are you an actor at all? He said, no, but I think I can be a funny guy. He's a cop. They said, "Uh, we're looking for an understudy for Gleason. Holy Gleason doesn't want to rehearse. This is in the first year of Gleason's. Show. His TV show, yeah. And, and he became his understudy. Wow. And he would rehearse with the wife. Audrey Meadows. Audrey Meadows. He did it for a long time, and he got into show business. That's how he got into show business. Yeah. So he was a stand-in, really, for Gleason, because Gleason didn't want to do the rehearsals for the camera blocking and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Well, Gleason is supposed to be able to read a script and know it. And know it. And know it well enough to get through it, but you can see when he's just uh, stretching. For example, she said, do you think you're going to that convention in New York? Am I going to that convention? (laughs) You're asking me if I'm going to New York. (laughs) She wants to know if I'm going to New York, (laughs) the convention in New York. What do you think, Norton? 
I guess she knows you're going to the convention in New York. I'm going to him. <laughs> he just found jokes and laughs. And yeah. Underneath his great comedy, it's a secret to it, is he was a great actor. Yes, he was. And anybody who's ever seen The uh, the Hustler, where he played Minnesota Fats. Oh, yes, wonderful. Comes in, takes control of the room without speaking, takes off his gloves and his coat. And he's a king. Yep. And he does it all with mime. He's a great actor. Now, did you study acting in school? I did, but it was a little limited. I was I was in the state of West Virginia. Mm-hmm. The only other person that ever went there that anybody knows is Don Knotts. Oh, wow. And I was well, a, that's good company. I was a freshman. He was a senior. So I knew Don. He had done the first three years of college, then got drafted, but luckily put into special services because as a 15-year-old, he had an act with a ventriloquist doll. Oh. And he was already a little comedian. And in college, he did comedy. And so he got to entertain the troops for Wonderful. two years. And that's a great gig. He never carried a gun, never dug a foxhole. Yep. But he also improved his chops. By the time he came back to college where I met him, he was a professional, skilled, mm. perfect professional comedian. Mm. Had an act of all kinds, you know. Had so much fun with him. Don had a very high voice. And he was married at that time to one of his wives. Her name was Kay. When I called there, if he answered the phone, he said, hello. I said, is Don there? She said, this is Don. <laughs> but I said it every time I called. <laughs> he taught me my first magic trick, which is the French drop. A lot of actors, and especially comedians, tried magic when yep, they were adolescents. I did too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I developed a clown act after I was in Children's Theater for $5 a performance. Well, I figured out that the lady who ran this little company oddly called the Rockefeller Players, she was one of the cheap relatives. <laughs> so anyway, I found that she charged $100 to the uh, school for an hour and a half of a show. I decided I could make a show and I would sell it to them for $45 for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't stretch a clown act. I used juggling and magic, but I couldn't stretch it out that long. Do you juggle also? Yeah. I taught myself to juggle. I lived on a gravel road, but as the gravel road is traveled a lot, a lot of the gravel is thrown to one side. Yes. And they're all over here. And sometimes they're not just small pieces of gravel. To, they're sort of rock size. I found some that had the same weight. And I, and after dropping them a thousand times, <laughs> usually you have to keep chasing them because you throw it in front of you. That's too right. That's right. I learned three ball yeah. juggling. But something interesting happened when I did the movie Popeye. And you played Wimpy. Yes, I did. In that. A lot of the people in the cast had been clowns. There were hmm. clowns from Italy playing small parts. Uh -huh. There were a lot of uh, circus performers. Uh, yeah, it was like a Fellini movie in many it was ways. A Fellini movie. And, a fantasy, you know. And Bob uh, auditioned clowns. This is and, Bob Altman. Yeah, Bob Altman, the director. The connection with Bob Altman was something that happened because of a play you were doing. A Jules Pfeiffer evening. A Jules Pfeiffer evening in New York. Nothing but cartoons. But Bob Altman saw me there and hired me for five movies in a row. Then also Jules wrote the screenplay for the movie Popeye. When you did the Popeye movie, it was you guys were on location in Malta. Yeah. I can't imagine what a bizarre experience that must have been for you. Well, it was like unreal in that it's not something you, you could do in that place to go to town in the evenings. Yeah. First of all, they're speaking Maltese, which is mixed up with Sicilian, which it was in the middle of the Mediterranean between Sicily and North Africa, uh -huh. Libya. Nothing to do. But we had such a talented group of people. There were 50 actors all together. 
small parts, medium and large. And of course, Robin Williams. Robin. And who is 50 parts in himself. Somebody, yeah. let's put on a show for ourselves. Yeah. So we'd sit in the audience, and when your turn came, you just go on stage. And Robin said, I won't be in it, I'll just be the MC. But of course, he MC'd every, every <laughs> act, and he was in it more than anybody. But he'd come out and do Ed Sullivan, introduce characters and do Ed Sullivan for a while and go back. After the next act, he'd come back and he'd do another dialect, <laughs> another imitation. He would do what he thought was Maltese dialect because he could do anything. Oh, he was amazing. And it lasted four hours. It was great. Really? This was just something you did to entertain yourselves? Yeah, just for ourselves. I did stuff for my old act. I recreated Smith and Dale's Dr. Cronkite with Libertini, Oh, something I knew very well. And Shelley Duvall could sing a song and play a guitar. Hmm. Uh, Bill Irwin was there. That's right. He did clown routines. Yeah. Wow. It was a very special place to be. We lived in a small village called Malia on the outskirts. We never felt we were in Malta or Malia because we were 12 hours a day shooting and then watching dailies. On that crazy And we thought we lived and breathed in Sweet Haven. Sweet Haven. That's right. Yeah. How long were you there? Six months. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's a long time. That's yeah. a long shoot. The interesting thing is that we would get all dressed up in our costumes and go to a little island off of Malta called Gogo. The island of Gogo? Gogo, a little island off of Malta. A caretaker had a cabin there. There's nothing else there. <laughs> but that's where we'd, we would... Hang the boats were thing. anchored and we would... Yeah. We'd get all dressed up with the big feet and the mustache and the, yeah. the uh, fat suit and yeah. eyebrows and they shaved my eyebrows and gave me a mustache. And then the next two days it would rain and we couldn't work. But we always went out there to see how the weather would be. We wasted a lot of time for bad weather, but Tred is playing that to Paramount. Yeah, of course. They say he's just back there smoking pot with all of his actors, you know. But that part was true. (laughs) It was. Good. Uh, One of the things I heard about Altman was that he mic'd each of you actors individually. That's right. So that he could actually mix while he was shooting, right? Everybody would wear a mic and he could record them separately on a track. And later he could lower one and raise the other Uh or take them both out. Or keep one person and not the other. He had great control of the editing process with sound. He always had huge casts. There were 24 people in Nashville and 50 people in Wedding. Was there a lot of improvisation? Uh, Well, he's sort of known for improvisation, but being an improviser, I know that it really wasn't that much. It's just people knew that they were free to change things. I was doing a scene in the Wedding in the dance room, and there was an orchestra playing, the girl was singing. And during it, we're all mic'd. Yeah. And I'm dancing with Dina Merrill, uh, who was one of the characters, a rich lady. And um, I said, you want to run the lines? Because we were nowhere near a mic. And I did, even though I had a mic, I just didn't think this was our coverage. Yeah. I just thought we're in the background. I saw cameras over there. Yeah. And she said, sure. So running the lines, just throwing them away, as you will. Right. If you're running mm-hmm. lines, you're not acting. You're just, just saying the words. Getting it going. Then later, he said, okay, that's a wrap. Everyone moved to the cake room. With the cake room. And I said to the AD, I said, uh, uh, you didn't get our conversation yet. He said, oh, no, we picked that up. Oh, be I said, there were no cameras near us. He said, no, this is a long lens. We had three cameras. At one point, we picked you up in a Mm two-shot. We did your lines. We got it. So (laughs) Dina and I said to each other, we weren't even acting. No. So when we watched the dailies the next day, it was pretty good acting because we weren't acting. Oh, that's We were just saying the thing, you know. That's true. Yeah. When you became part of Altman's ensemble. What differentiated him from all the other directors you worked with? He was always regarded to be unique. Well, 
the script was a very loose thing. He sort of knew what scenes he wanted and yeah. what information was in it. And I remember wedding, the first one I did with him, the first day we got there, he gave everybody a notebook. And the notebook had listed all the characters and their backstories. Hmm. And one person would have a, one page, and the last page was a violin player who said she plays the violin. <laughs> but they were little bios, and we all had a notebook. But there was no script yet. Wow. He just knew what he wanted to do. <laughs> Other movies, there were scripts. In fact, mm -hmm. I helped write a script with him once. When did you get into your writing? Because I, I know your lovely wife, Winnie Holzman, is a writer, yeah. and you met her in improvisation first? And yes, there was a little company of improv people. They were all friends of mine from the commercial world. Around. Where were you doing this, out here in L.A.? No, it was uh, in the village. In the village in New York. Years ago, this 25-year-old was there who was Winnie, and she's very funny and charming and later became this huge writer, great writer. Yep. So then, you know, over six months, we fell in love and got married. Oh, that's wonderful. Yep. Where did Winnie get the idea for Wicked? How it was, did it's that... based on a book. It was based on a book, but how did she get the opportunity to do that? Well, she had done a musical in New York called Birds of Paradise. Mm -hmm. Her training was the NYU. She was in a charter class of a thing called the Musical Theater Workshop. What an opportunity. She got a scholarship. Wow. And her teachers were Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Lawrence, Stephen Sondheim. Oh, wow. Please. Every big name on Broadway came and taught. Because there were so many of them, they wouldn't have to teach every week or every day. Sure. They come in once every two weeks. But those are the, her teachers. Can you imagine having those people teach you about no, what you want to know? It seems like you spent so much of your career in New York. Were you bi-coastal? Were you going back and forth all the time? Or did you sort of do New York? Getting a little personal if you ask him, yeah, well, bi-coastal. Uh, I came at her to do a series over at Universal. It was the only series I ever had to lead in. I always play these guys who don't smile because my father never smiled. And I love Buster Keaton. That's right. <laughs> it's all connected. Your father never smiled? Never laughed, never smiled. Never laughed? Never hardly talked to me. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Was he a miner? <laughs> no, he worked in a factory. Hmm. But his, he's a remarkable man that I just learned to admire more after I was growing up. Yeah. Uh, my father got married, and he wanted to have a home, but he had a, didn't have enough money. So he bought two lots out of town, you know, in almost a rural area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Two lots for $25 each in 1900-something. Wow. And by himself, he built a house and did everything himself. Took him two years wow. to do all this. He worked from seven to three. Seven to three. And nearby factory came over there and worked until dark for two years. Astonishing. When they put an electric poles in near it. Yeah. He stayed there and slept on the floor. He just worked like a dog. He was a genius, but no one knew that. I thought everyone's father built his own house. Sure. In therapy, years and years later, I said, I don't know how my father knew all that. He said. Well, your father had to be highly, highly, highly intelligent to do all that. He had bad eyes. He wore these thick glasses. Thick glasses, right. How does a guy like that measure a quarter of an inch or half an inch or an inch with bad Challenged eyes? eyes? But he did it. But he, all he cared about was work. He'd come home from work, put down his lunch pail, go to his workshop, called in for dinner, you know. Wow. He hardly ever talked to anybody. He was just a curmudgeon in that way. Not a mean guy. I think he was afraid of people. Mm. His father left him and left the family. Uh, you know, he was a young kid. He's, I think he was afraid of being close, a fear of intimacy, 
even with his family. I never got a hug from him. Mm. Now, what did your mother make up for this? Was she a loving? She was loving, but uh, she came from a family where the father was more, her father was more like that. Mm-hmm. Men were just work guys. Yes. They didn't spend a lot of time talking to their kids, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's not manly after you're two or three years <laughs> old to hug a boy. Right. You know, those kind of cultures. Yep, absolutely. The only way you can bond is to take them fishing or hunting. Yeah. Well, I never even got... Was there no laughter in the house? No. So where did it come from for you? I don't know. In fact, I'm not a big laugher. I just enjoy comedy, <laughs> you know. A lot of times, you know this, comedians are the most sincere, straightest people in the world. I know. And if there's a group of them and one of them says something funny, they don't laugh. They say, that's, that's funny. <laughs> but they don't laugh because they're too close to it. It's interesting that you said all that because watching you perform... You're very deadpan. You're always very serious. I am. Which makes it really funny because you right. feel a little dangerous watching you. It's in my DNA from my father. I guess it is. Yeah. yeah. And I had uncles and I had neighbors. Uh, and they were all kind of stoic types. And a lot of men who are macho are thinking about just work and being a masculine. Yeah, laughing is even... Uh, yeah, laughing is a little bit... A little feminine. Silly. So this is reverse conditioning for you? A lot of parts I've That's gotten right. are my father. That's right. And I, if I, they're not my father, I make them my father. Yeah. How many fathers have you played? About 25. 25. <laughs> this book I wrote is called Movie Dad. When? It's coming out in October. The hook of the book, while I was becoming the most well-known dad in movies, asked for all the time, my crazy ex-wife kidnapped my children. Oh. And took them away, and they were gone for 10 years. Three children that you I had did. with her. They've gone for 10 years, did you say? 10 years before they came back. Wow. One of them was 18 years old, came back. Had you not seen them? I didn't see them for 10 years. Imagine that. And look at the irony of this. Here's everybody's dad who can't talk to his kid. (gasps) And a reviewer of uh, Seen Candle said, Dooley turns in another great performance as the father. He's the perfect father. I don't know if there are any little Dooleys out there, but if there are, they have a great dad. And they're all gone. They were in Europe for a while, then they were in this country, but they they were just unreachable. You know, I was bad-mouthed to the point that they thought oh, I was course. a bad oh, guy. Of course, of course. Did they know you were an actor? Did they see you? Did well, you eventually, keep... I don't know how it came about. When my son was maybe 14. He went to see Breaking Away. Uh-huh, Breaking I Away. I started hugging Dennis Christopher as my son. Yeah. And he's, and he's tears in his eyes for the whole movie. Sure. And he sees me hugging my son, and he can't hug me. He leaves the theater. Oh. And after the 10 years? They came back. Uh, and good? One, one kid who was only three or four when they left uh, didn't want to return to me, and he's estranged. Even he heard, too, his mother's propaganda too much. And he didn't remember his, me as much. Yeah. But the other two were in my life for, now for 30 years. Wonderful. They came to my wedding 37 years ago. Wow, that's wonderful. But let's get back to some of your inspirations. You mentioned Buster Keaton and working with Buster Keaton. Mm -hmm. Keaton was my favorite. I'm wondering why he was your favorite, too. What what just set him apart? I saw Chaplin and Keaton and all those people. I never cared for Harold Lloyd. I knew that he was successful and he made a lot of money and was as popular as those guys, practically. Maybe a little under Chaplin, but he was even more financially successful than Keaton. Mm -hmm. But... I could admire Chaplin from afar, yeah. but I could not imagine sitting down and having a beer with him. Yeah. 
Hmm. He didn't seem like an average guy. He might have played a tramp, but he was the smartest tramp you've ever met. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain superiority in his tramp. Like he was never the underdog, really. He might have dressed like a bum, but he was smarter than the audience, smarter than the other actors. Mm-hmm. This Keaton seemed to be every man. Yes. He seemed like this is a guy you could sit down with and yeah, have a Yeah, also beer. like a comic victim in a way, too. Yes, life, life happened to him. Yeah, and the funny thing is, once in a while, especially in his early days, if somebody challenged the chaplain's tramp, he would quickly take his coat off and throw it on the ground and do this. <laughs> right. He yeah. starts sparring. Yeah, starts sparring. Would, you yeah. know. That's right. On a dime. Yeah, that's true. If anybody ever threatened Keaton in any way, he ran. <laughs> He's a pacifist. Yeah, right. He never got into fights. He would never attack anybody. Uh, even guys who were chasing him. He'd take the fall. He'd take the fall, literally. I only learned later that he was a better filmmaker than Chaplin. Uh-huh. He created things in movies that, that are still going on. Yeah. In a movie, Sherlock Jr., he walked down the aisle of the movie theater. He's a projectionist. Walked into the movie. Yeah. And later, Woody Allen stole it. Purple, Purple Rose of Cairo. Cairo, and you can call it a homage all you want, but it stole it. <laughs> it stole it. But it was Keaton. Mm-hmm. And he did things where you opened a car door and Buster got out, then another Buster got out, and another. He was doing things Chaplin never did with film and cinema. I have a secondhand Keaton story that I want to tell you. Uh, and if you've heard it before, don't stop me. Uh, this is through Jack Riley, my dear late friend who I did. Yeah, funny guy. Oh, Jack was wonderful. He was doing a Red Skelton show with Buster Keaton as guest star. And the gag was a pizza parlor with one of those big ovens and they had the pizza paddle that put put the pizza into the oven mm-hmm. and then pull it out and the gag was jack was the boss and keaton was the uh, apprentice and he had to handle the paddle and he went too far with the paddle went into the oven and then came out all smoking and blah, 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 blah. in the rehearsal for this they hadn't finished the set completely but they had the frame and most of the oven built in the rehearsal, he did the gag, and then they said, okay, on to the next setup. And Jack noticed as they were walking back to the dressing room that his knees were bleeding through his pants. He had skinned his knees because they hadn't finished the wood on the bottom of this oven. He skinned both of his knees in the gag. And Jack said, oh my God, we gotta get a nurse. And he grabbed his hand. Buster Keaton grabbed Jack's hand and squeezed it so hard, Jack said, that he had a bruise on his arm. And Keaton said, no, don't tell anybody. It was my fault. And he's been bruised his whole life. Oh, he broke a collarbone in that gag with the water tower and in, in the- Broke his neck and didn't know it. <laughs> Maybe that's why he always had that dour expression on his face. He was just he in was so in much pain. pain. <laughs> no, he grew up being in, in pain. He And they tossed him around. That's, that's, that's why they called him Buster, right? Yeah, because he's not in the act, but even when he was younger, yeah. he'd had a fall. And the legend is that Houdini, uh, who knew the father, said, uh, that's quite a buster, meaning a fall. Oh. And the father said, yeah, that's a good name for him. But he wasn't yet in the act. Oh, he wasn't in the act yet. Oh. So, but some people say that's apocryphal and maybe the father made it up. Yeah, so, but the, I like it, the story is that it's Houdini because before he was in vaudeville, there was a show called a medicine show. You know how? Oh, sure. It was called the Houdini Keaton Medicine Show. It was Joe Keaton, Buster's father, and Houdini. No kidding. The handcuff king. Yeah. 
They gathered a crowd. They sold snake oil, which cures anything and moves on to the next city. And they only had a performers because it was a, to gather a crowd. And Buster's mother was on the stage. Uh, Joe, his father, was a roustabout, which means like a, a grip. And he would help pack a truck or something. Not a truck, but a stagecoach with horses. He was helper. Yeah. And his only talent was he could kick high at very long legs proportionately to his torso. And he could kick a man's hat off of his head. And you just go on stage and a guy with a hat and he kick it off and that's enough to grow a crowd. Oh yeah. A medicine show. And then he married this girl, they became Buster's parents. On YouTube you can search Buster Keaton Candid Camera. Yes. He did funny. a candid camera? Yeah. The mastery. The bit was some unwitting customer at a luncheonette yep. in mm -hmm. New York sits next to Keaton and Keaton starts to clumsily just destroy himself with coffee. I know that bit and one of the things that happens he's eating soup very close yeah. and leaning in very closely and he engineered it so his wig fell in the soup. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he engineered it. Yeah. You got to be smart to know how to do that without looking oh, obvious. Oh, I know, I know. I did a couple of those. You did. What did you do in Kenny Hammer? One of them was they had rigged a, a machine that gives you drinks, but they rigged it so that I was inside it. It took <laughs> out parts of it. A guy goes in and he puts in a coin, and a cup comes down, but no drink. And he rattles the thing. I said, uh, Don't pound on the machine. I'm inside here. What? I said, Yeah, I'm a repairman. I'm repairing it. What happened? What's your problems? <laughs> well, I got a cup but didn't get any drink oh i said let me fix that and well, what did you order he said a ginger ale and i poured in a coke i mean i could control it so it was putting him on having a conversation with a guy inside <laughs> the thing another one i did was i had my head in a bird cage and there was a canary in there <laughs> i'm in a parking lot and i said could you give me a hand what i was trying to feed my bird you know from my lips and i put my head in i got stuck i can't get out well, most people walked away from it because it looked too fucking weird. <laughs> Speaking of my other influencers, uh, I thought Sid Caesar was head and shoulders above almost everybody in comedy. I agree. Because I not only like comedy, but I like sketch playing yep. more than stand-up. I don't know how they did that 90-minute, your show of shows, every week. Well, it was his genius, but... And what a writing staff. And Woody did the typing. Yeah, I know. Well, they brought Woody in because they knew he was writing and funny. Uh-huh. There was a secretary, yeah. but she couldn't really keep track of it because there was a, a crazy shouting match, oh, you know. Oh, sure. And uh, Caesar didn't like a joke. He didn't say no. He would pantomime machine gun to shoot it down. <laughs> That's how he shot down an idea. But he was loud and aggressive. Yeah, and I, I worked with him. Uh, my partner, Peter Bergman, and I worked with Sid because he wanted to get back on television 30 years ago, 20 years ago, I guess. And uh, so we were at his house. We worked with him at his house. In Long was, Island? No, in uh, the Hollywood Hills. Out here. During our writing sessions, he would have a big souvenir mug filled with water. We asked him about it. He said, well, you know, I used to have a really big appetite. We do the show, then we go out and have something to eat. And I'm sitting there one day getting ready to order, and a waiter goes by with a tray with steaks on it. And I stopped him. I said, That, that, I want that. Put the plate here. And he said, Well, Mr. Caesar, these people ordered their dinner. I'm taking, I don't care. I'll pay for their dinners. That, put it here. And Reiner, who was with him, said, Sid, Sid, you're really out of control. He said, Okay, okay. So he went to a psychiatrist. And he worked with a psychiatrist for a while. And one day the psychiatrist said to him, Sid, you know, your problem is you have an enormous appetite. And he said, you, you don't have to drink 
alcohol or beer. You don't have to eat, you know, everything that you see. All you need is to satisfy that appetite. You could be drinking water. And so Caesar says, oh, thank you. And he gets up off the couch. He said, wait a minute, Sid, we still have another 15 minutes to go. He said, no, I'm cured. I got it. And he changed his whole life. Then he was skinny. Boy, was he funny. Caesar was a, one of the first people I admired because I could feel he was a good actor under all the comedy. And the company that he had, the way he nurtured his ensemble. They were doing a Japanese movie once. Reiner was playing the Japanese warlord, mm -hmm. the heavy. And his name was Gunzer Mishpucha. <laughs> the whole family. And they had the, the Princess Schmata was in it. Princess Schmata. Oh, they were brilliant. But that writing team is what did all oh, that, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. I grew up in New York, and I kind of romanticize what New York was like, the show business world, in the 50s and 60s when television was coming up and yeah. Sid Caesar, Jackie Gleason. Yeah. Jackie Gleason had an impression on you as well. He did, very much. And before he did The Honeymooners, which is mostly nobody knows me except for that, but he had a variety show. Reginald Van Gleeson, yep. Poor Soul. The Poor Soul. Can you perhaps draw a snapshot of what it was like to be in New York? Well, here's the thing that tells you what it was like in those days. Yes. Early, early, early television. We're talking 1950s? 52 when I got there. Okay. They still then worked out a system to have audiences come in to watch a television right. show live. There was no system in place. So if you walked up 6th Avenue, there would be ushers out there from NBC saying, want tickets to a show? It's yeah. a soap opera. Here's tickets free. And Sid Caesar, you know. Yeah. And I would go see wow. it and shoot it in the afternoon. And, and I got to see a lot of the Sid Caesar shows live. Wow. You're still working. Well, not in the pandemic. But True. that's the only thing stopping you. Yeah. Before the pandemic, I would do about guest spots on about eight shows a year. And I was on a show called Kids Are All Right, and I did four of those, and I'll be in another show. And maybe that's one, maybe it's two, maybe I do six guest stars. That was the way I was working. Mm -hmm. Those things are worth five grand. So you'll make 50 grand a year just as an older actor. You've always been a character actor because you're an actor. Yeah. And you play characters. Well, I made my first movie when I was 49 with Altman. It's your first movie. First movie. Seems late in your career, right? I was an improviser and a commercial yep. actor. Yep. I had also done The Odd Couple on Broadway. That was my one Broadway show. You were understudying in that and then you took over. Is that right? Well, I got an audition for The Odd Couple. I never had an audition for it. Broadway show Broadway before because I was stuck in the commercial business. Didn't have an agent for it legit. Sure. So I want to be familiar with it. You know how it is with an audition. Sure. You don't have to know every word. But hell, I had became so familiar with it, I, I knew it cold. Mm. Then he learned all the cues cold. I could do all the cues, too. Mm -hmm. I didn't need the script, but of course, as an actor, you know. You yeah, go, you go on and you, you hold, hold it. it right. Because if you're nervous and you miss one line, there you screw it, is. it up. It's right there, yeah. I knew it cold. I knew I didn't have to have a script, but I needed to hold it. So it looks it looks right. It's mm -hmm. professional. You don't, look, uh, you don't look like you're bragging. <laughs> so I go on stage and... Uh, it's for the Art Carney role. Mike Nichols is there with his entourage and the producers. And there's a couple of chuckles because I have good timing and all that. Mm -hmm. But then at a certain point, Oscar does a line to Felix, which is uh, angering him, picking on him, right? Mm -hmm. So I took the opportunity to throw my script in the air. Well, <laughs> anything valuable torn it in half or thrown away is funny. So it, I got to laugh by throwing my papers in the air. <laughs> Having the papers in the air allowed me to get on my knees and pick them up like Felix, cleaning up the cleaning floor. Cleaning up, sure. And since I still know my lines, I could do my lines and pick up and become the fussy uh, guy. 
there's a couple of big laughs when I threw it away and started picking it up. And Mike came down to the footlights. And Mike didn't know me, but he had seen me down at the, in the village. He dropped in once in a while to that Second City Company. He dropped in occasionally. But Mike had seen me do a routine with, I replaced Alan Arkin in a sketch we called Selling Fallout Shelters Door to Door. It was an old Second City sketch. Mike said, I saw you do that thing in the Fallout Shelter thing. It was very funny. I said, could you do a little of that for us? Hmm. I said, it's hard, Mike, because the other actor had lines, not a monologue. He said, that's all right. Then I left, and I never had this happen anywhere in the world. I'm going up the alley next to the theater, and the stage manager runs after me and says, you've got it. Oh, isn't that wow. wonderful? So my throwing my papers in the air. That's what did it. And even saying, uh, I don't think I can do the thing you're asking me for. But he already must have liked what I did. Anyway, I got the job. Then they told me that indeed I would be the understudy, yeah, understudy. for Carney. So when we're doing the rehearsals, once in a while, Nichols would say, I'm finished with the poker players. We're going to work with Walter and, and Art now. Yeah. You guys can take like a three-hour lunch and then come back. So the poker players will leave, but I stayed because I'm understudying. And I figure I learned by watching rather than oh, learning from the book. And I learned the blocking. Art Carnian, Walter Matthau. Art was an alcoholic. And out of town, we were in six weeks in three cities, and he never missed a show. A week after we opened, he missed a show, but never called in and said, I'm not coming. Oh, dear. So I got into his outfit and I did the part, but I was word perfect. I got all the laughs. Boy, that must have been fun. Oh, you're kidding? <laughs> Every, a laugh a minute, except that Walter Matthau was not easy to get along with. Oh, really? Was he a grouchy guy? Tough guy. I had a run-in with uh, Walter because he was too mischievous. Everybody in the poker player group had been complaining about him backstage after we went off. What did he do wrong tonight? Well, he stepped on my line. He did this. He changed that. And we all just saw him as a heavy pain in the ass. Hmm. And so they called a meeting, the stage manager between shows on a matinee day. Said, there's a bad morale going on. I hear people changing lines, people stepping on people's lines. And it was mostly Walter, not hmm. us. Yeah, right. So what's the problem? Well, Carney didn't speak up. The poker players didn't speak up. They were intimidated by the fact that Matthau just won the Tony. And he was the de facto star. And I must have had a great week in therapy for some reason because I'm not confrontational. I said... The problem is that Walter's fucking up the play every night. <laughs> and he starts making excuses, saying, well, if you mean I like to change things a little, that's just the way I work. I loosen myself up. It's, you know, I open, I come into the scene, maybe I'll say something that's not in the script. Mm. And uh, I said, and maybe you'll step on somebody else's joke. You'll cut the laugh by coming in too soon. But nobody was stepping up at me, and he was giving lame excuses. He would say things like, well, perhaps you all should just, you know, vote and get a better act. Oh, uh, well, that, he doesn't mean that. It was just bullshit. Yeah. And that's what he used to do with Mike Nichols. He would not take his notes, and he would bullshit about it. Mm. He'd say to him, maybe I'm not a good enough actor to remember your notes. Or, you know, I think I'm going to do the note, but then it just comes out the other way. Aye, but he was just a very, very big bullshitter. <laughs> Five years after that, I had a little job where I directed sketches on a show called The David Frost Report. One day in that show, Art Carney came on as a guest star, and we went out to lunch together. And he says to me, you know that day when you called Walter Mathal on the carpet? He said, I wanted to ask you something. Were you ever a boxer? And I said, no, hardly. <laughs> Why? He says, I thought you were going to pop in one because I was outspoken. I says, no. 
Well, I, I feel bad now, and I felt bad then that I shouldn't have spoken up about him. Because he was suffered more from it than any of us. Because yes. he would upstage you when Art didn't understand upstaging. He would step upstage, and Art would turn upstage to face him, and you have your back to the audience. Yes. A normal actor just move up there with you. And every two weeks, he'd miss two performances. Art, because Art. Was- and I had done it maybe 22 times. Yeah. And one day he missed, and the next day he missed, and the next day he missed, and he never came back. Oh. He had checked into a rehab. His wife didn't know where he was. His agent didn't know where he was. It was a mystery. Wow. So I got to play the lead and be above the title wow. in the show, playing Felix. Great. And then after a couple of weeks, they said to me, oh, we wanted to tell you we found the new Felix. And I'm thinking, oh. what? what? New Felix. I never missed a line. I got oh. all my laughs. I said, why? They said, oh, well, you know, the producers, we felt we needed a name. You know, it's the odd couple. We just can't say Walter Matthau and someone else down here. The people don't know very much. Well, they could just put me above the title if they wanted to. Well, I was there anyway. So the new guys, well, who is it? They said, Eddie Bracken. I said, okay, I know who he is. Yeah, Eddie Bracken. I said, well, he hasn't been very many movies lately. They said, yeah, but older people buy tickets. People from out of town buy tickets, and they'll remember him. They said, you can go back to the table being a... Oh, jeez. What was his name? Speed was his name. Mike Nichols told me, you're the engine of the poker game. No matter what the other guys are doing, they'd be distracted with conversation. Come on, let's play, let's play, let's play. You go back to the table and be speed. And I said, you know, I think I'll be moving on. I'd been in it a year. Sure. Well, if they're going to demote me, fuck them. But what was it like working with Matthau when after after you had... You know, well, I know one thing. When he walked up stage, I went with him. Yeah. <laughs> you take a step up stage, I go up there, I go with him. We'd end up at the back wall. Yeah, right. But he knew I could hold my own. There was a begrudging respect for you. and then it A, a little bit, yeah. Even though I'd called him out. Curious about Art Carney working off of somebody like as strong as Jackie Gleason in that iconic role and he Well he was he held his own he with Jackie. He was strong and everything, but Art was a very shy person. Wasn't Gleason the same sort of dynamic? I mean, Gleason yeah, drank? Gleason, he respected Art. He respected him. All the stories I've heard about uh, Jackie Gleason, I never got to meet him. He met, loved Art. Was he, had a, he has a really big heart. He knew he had a gold mine there. The guy was great. Well, there was one story uh, about him in New York that I heard. He's having dinner out, and at the end of the thing, he says to the waiter, he says, so how, how much is the biggest tip you've ever gotten? And he said, oh, it's $50, Mr. Gleason. He says, here's 100 he says, by the way, who gave you the $50? He said, you did, Mr. Gleason. <laughs> oh, it was Gleason? Oh, Gleason was very generous. Yes, no, I yeah. know. I think you're finished. In the I business? Mean, it's been a good career, you know, and you've talked about it, so we've got that. So, And you've got a book coming out. Okay, so I think I think you can, you can just... You just quit. Pack it in. You don't have to. I told my wife about 10 years ago, if I never get another job on a sitcom where I have 10 lines, I don't care. I said, I proved my point. You are having the most amazing career and a wonderful life. I only only hope that I can live as long and as as uh, How joyously. Old are you now, by the way? I'm 81. 93. You're 93. You're an amazing 93. And loving it. Boy. You're in great health. You're yeah. great. You're having fun. You got your mind. Most of your mind. Never smoked and I never drank and I never did drugs. I don't drink coffee or tea, no stimulants. And I was breastfed till I was five years old. And don't think you don't get some cholesterol. Yeah. Not cholesterol. Cholesterol, which is immunity from the mother's milk. Mm-hmm. So all these things put together might mean why I've your longevity my longevity they need to put you on the cover of aarp 
immediately. <laughs> if I knew how to spell it, they would. <laughs> I think you're remarkable in terms of how vital you are and still so present. How do you stay relevant? Any secret to that? A curious mind. My mind is busy and active and thoughtful. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Plus, you have all those jokes memorized. You can amuse yourself constantly, I imagine. This podcast, Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, came out of the same kind of instinct when Ted and I have been friends for a long time and we basically got to a point where we used to have these lunches, regular lunches and just have a ball. We said, well, why don't we record, make a show, you know. Yeah. My mom's got a barn, you know. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Mr. Brown, for uh, this wonderful trip through your personal history. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I've enjoyed you both a great deal, and it's wonderful to reminisce about things. It sure is. And I know listeners are interested in trivia. Yeah, I learned a lot, actually. Yeah. Thank you very you much. You already knew a lot, because I know you're a guy who has his ear to the ground for this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Terrific. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Well, Ted, this was a fascinating trip through uh, history and histrionics at the same time. <laughs> and, and I'm very grateful that, that uh, Paul and I, who have spoken often over the years, could actually do it on the radio. Fantastic. All right, until next time. Will there be a next time? Well, let's hope so. Let's hope. Bye. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Paul Dooley. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a Ernest Guy. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Shows, visit our website, sexyboomershow.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast for free by clicking the subscribe button in your app or webpage and never miss an episode. Please tell your friends about Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. Produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man.